the ITC has created hundreds of thousands of jobs, sparked more than 150 billion in private investment, and helped grow solar deployment by more than 10,000 percent. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan. And I'm your co-host, Lee Wang. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have my co-host, Lee Wang. He is the Director of Marketing at Renew Energy and is the founder of MJ Wang Media. Lee, always great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. I can't believe we're here. We just actually recently taped our special 50th episode, which will be forthcoming, but it's amazing. Again, we cannot forget to thank you, the readers. I mean, listeners out there. <laughs> I always say readers, but listeners. Well, he yeah. was a news reporter yeah. in the past, and he did radio. So, if yeah. still... so again, thanks so much. Today, we're going to take a step back. Benoit had realized that he had never really gone deeper into the fundamentals of financing of solar. So today's episode is going to be on financing solar the 101s. Yeah, so it's going to be very, very high level. We're not going to go into too much detail. We've done 101s before and we've had questions and listeners reach out to us asking us about financing. So we thought it would be great to do a high level podcast. Yeah, so Benoist, financing, talk to us a little bit about your earlier background. Were you always in tune with financing and money as even as a teenager or was that something that you had to develop over time was that something as part of your parents background that helped you tell us a little bit about sort of your earliest days and how you got into finance sure so what really actually got me interested in financing when i was in seventh grade i actually was in a stock market picking class so we picked stocks and then in the course of that year we basically researched stocks and we were looking at the newspaper with the Wall Street Journal, the New York Stock Exchange. And actually, I ended up in that class, which my mom actually pushed for me to be in that class because you had to be in several like honors classes to get into it. And I wasn't. But then I had actually the highest performing stock portfolio out of the class. And actually, the big stock was Exxon that I picked. And Exxon ended up appreciating and splitting during that year, which helped make my portfolio the one that had the biggest return. So that's what really got me interested, actually, in stocks. And then my dad also has a very big interest in the stock market and trading stocks. So that's where I first got into interested in financing and investing before I went to college. So do you still have that record of that achievement somewhere? I don't. I mean, it's all in my mind. You know? <laughs> it's probably somewhere. My mom probably threw it out, actually. Probably. <laughs> She threw out a lot of my stuff. Yeah, that's what really got me interested in finance. And then I actually ended up going to NYU in the Stern School of Business for undergrad. So wait, this was in seventh grade, you said? Seventh grade, So yeah. you're about 11? 11, 11 years old, yeah. yeah. So shout out to your school. Was there a particular teacher who instituted this program? That's, that's yeah, pretty great. Yeah, so it was a teacher, mm-hmm. Mr. Martone. He was a science teacher. Mr. Martone, I hope you're listening out there. <laughs> He was a science teacher, but then he had a very an interest in the financial markets. And then he thought that students would be interested. So he created this class, which I loved. And that's actually what first got me interested in finance. That's incredible. I mean, financial literacy and especially something taking a concrete exercise like playing the stock market is 
such an incredible thing to ingrain in a, as such a young mind. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know for you, Lee, you have two kids. So definitely. Well, that's what I'm thinking about, right? The earlier we can get them into basic financial literacy, the, the better it is, I think. So my parents and specifically my dad was very interested in the stock market and trading stock in high school and middle school, more high school. He would show me what he was doing, try to explain it. And so it was kind of ingrained in my mind. And then, as I said in previous podcasts, both my parents had their own business. They were both entrepreneurs and specifically my dad's business. I started working at at 12 or 13 years old and pretty much ran. And then, as I said, I went to NYU and the Stern School of Business. And then, So in between 7th and NYU, had you continued your interest in financing in high school? Was there any opportunity there? Not as much, but I was still following the stock market but not like I was when I was in seventh grade. Well, you were busy being a track star. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, at that point of my life, it was like track was my sort of focus. For those that don't know, (laughs) Benoit can run. So that's one thing he's known for. And he actually caught a pretty big touchdown pass on in his recent cha- <laughs> L- Little Giants championship game. So don't underestimate Benoit. So if you ever encounter him and you want to think you can take him, I would think twice. So what Lee's talking about is I play in actually a two-hand touch football league. And we had our championship game last Tuesday. And I caught a 30-yard deep pass for a touchdown where yeah. I totally ran past the guy. And by the way, Lee knows I'm actually constantly working out and exercising and then playing this football league. Ashley Benoit is quite the exercise aficionado. So he's been teaching me. He's trying to get me. I still need to go. I need to go to yoga. So I know that's something that's been helpful to him. Yeah, and Lee could actually lift a lot of weight. You can see some <laughs> of these Instagram videos from how much he could deadlift the overhead press. And I know you could bench a lot of weight too. So as a former football player back in high school. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I know enough. it's been a few years. Since yeah, then, but. enough about this stuff. So Benoit, you went to NYU and that changed the game for you, right? Yeah, I was in the business school. I didn't really know what I wanted to study. I also was pre-med as well because I come from a family of doctors. I was just going to say, right? That's natural. That's the natural thing. So, How many Indian first generation go to pre-med that you know? Pretty much like 95%. 95%, So I took all the courses with my business courses, biology, chemistry, organic chemistry. I took physics once. I took seven out of the eight pre-med courses. But I didn't really do well in organic chemistry. Uh-oh. And then I ended up actually working at a hedge fund uh-huh. as an intern, D.E. Shaw, which is a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. And then seeing like these concepts of the stock market and trading, investing, being applied, that's what really got me interested then in finance. And then I ended up majoring in finance and economics at NYU. So what was your takeaways from that internship at DHSL. That was an amazing internship. I initially worked in accounts payable, but what really got me excited was like they were paying me fourteen to fifteen dollars an hour, and then there was no dress. Which code. back then, you know, it was a was, lot of money. Yeah, for so, for a nineteen year old, right? <laughs> yeah, nineteen year old kid. But it was an amazing place to work because D. Shaw is now is a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. I had the opportunity. I would go in David Shaw's office and he would sign checks because as I said, I worked in accounts payable. Then they moved me more to the operation side where I was basically analyzing the profit and losses of the different trading strategies. So I was on the trading floor and if I saw anomalies 
in trading of the different trading groups, I would speak to the controller. So it was actually one of these internships where you could actually do things, right? Yeah, so, so it, yeah. Over, I was getting more and more experience. Like I definitely did a lot of filing, a lot of like admin work. I was there for like 13 months. Then I was able to get more and more really cool sort of work to do. And as I told you, like the most famous alumni from DE Shaw was Jeff Bezos. Who's that? No. <laughs> <laughs> so my yeah. boss actually uh, used to work for yeah. Jeff Bezos. So I knew about Amazon a very long time ago. He obviously pitched that to D.E. Shaw and David Shaw, and I'm glad that he went with his dream and saw an opportunity. And it's kind of amazing to see what's happened since then with Amazon and Jeff Bezos specifically. So what was next after that internship for you? So I worked at Ernst & Young in their valuation practice. I was in their financial advisory services practices, and I would value companies for many different purposes. And then I went actually to graduate school. I got my MBA at Rutgers University in finance as well. Between my first and second year, I worked at Deloitte & Touche in their energy structured finance group. And how I got into, that's in their financial advisory services practice. So I valued power plants as well for many different purposes. And it was interesting because like how I got into energy was the senior manager. She wanted me to work for her. So I worked for her during that summer. And then I got an offer after I graduated. Then I was working part-time at Deloitte my second year of my MBA. And it's kind of crazy because as I was telling Lee, she's now head of the Renewable Energy Group. And she reached out to me to speak at the Deloitte Renewable Energy Conference that's happening in Dallas in two weeks in the first week of October, which is really surreal for me because I would have never thought that all these years later that I would actually be speaking at a Deloitte conference in Dallas, Texas in renewable energy about the impact of renewable energy on the future of real estate. Wow. So you've come a long way. <laughs> yeah. I never expected that. Yeah. So it's interesting how the world works. Were you always in touch with this mentor of yours? So it's funny because she then transitioned. Her name is Marlene Matika. She then transitioned to renewable energy for Deloitte. So I would see her at renewable energy conferences and then she's actually on our newsletter, the Renew Energy Monthly newsletter. If you're interested in receiving this newsletter, we also talk about the podcast as well. It's info at reneuenergy.com. But then, Lee, you would find this interesting because you're the marketing guru of Renew Energy. She saw the minute video that I created on LinkedIn where I talk about the NYCHA portfolio that we're developing for community solar. It's 1.3 megawatts on 38 different buildings in Manhattan and Brooklyn. It's community solar. We're providing solar to low-income housing and then also training NYCHA residents. I know, Lee, you were kind of pushing me to do videos, and it was just a minute video that I posted on LinkedIn, but it was amazing, like, the response from that video. Like, we had 3,000 views of that video, 55 likes, and 15 comments, and there were several leads that came from that. And then also, she reached out after she saw the video to ask me whether I wanted to present at this conference. Incredible. I mean, the reason I push any people to do video is it really helps establish trust. I think you literally seeing someone in the eye, hearing them speak about a topic is just huge. And, and nowadays, 2019, everyone's used to, I would say, Fortunately or unfortunately is however you look at it. More people prefer to watch videos than to read. It's a great medium and it's pretty minimal to most people with the iPhone and a tripod can set something up. So 
kudos to you, Benoit, for just trying it and look at what it's gotten you so far. Yeah, and then it's exciting news too because we've just launched our YouTube channel as well. So we have now all the podcasts on YouTube. We're going to obviously upload this video that I talked about, the minute video. And then we're also going to upload eventually the live podcast event that we did July 30th where we had how solar check technology is changing the world. And you'll see more video from us in the future, we're working on the studio and the equipment and the video. Yeah, and just a reminder, YouTube doesn't let us have a unique URL until we reach a certain amount of subscribers and downloads and uh, views. So for now, if you just go on YouTube and search under Benoit's name, it should pop up. We'll continue to evolve that. Yeah, and we'll have the links in the notes. So I appreciate, Lee, everything that you've done with the marketing and being the marketing guru. So this energy. conference that you're heading to, this sounds like a pretty big deal for the company. It's definitely great exposure. Yeah. Any type of conference that you're speaking in definitely helps. And then I'm sure there'll be a lot of interested Deloitte and Touche clients. We'll also have the link to the conference as well. If people are interested, it's October 2nd to 4th in Dallas, Texas. I'm actually speaking on that Friday. And the other speakers on the, that panel, which is Impact of Renewable Energy on the Future of Real Estate, is Lisa Brown. She's from Johnson Controls. She's the National Senior Director of Strategy, Local Government, and Municipal Infrastructure. And then Suzanne Nicky from Hannon Armstrong, and she's a managing director there. So a lot of key players in the industry coming up on this. Coming time. to that conference in Dallas, definitely. That's great. So Benoit, continue your story about how these experiences early in career helped shape you and got you into where you are now. Deloitte got me into the energy industry. Then I really wanted to work in more of the energy investment side of it. So I ended up actually working for a private equity firm called Ridgewood Energy, which is a multi-billion dollar private equity fund based in Ridgewood, New Jersey at the time. And then we moved to Montvale. And then they had a renewable energy group that they invested in renewable energy projects. It was not solar, it's landfill gas, biomass, hydroelectricity. And I analyzed potential investments in these renewable energy projects. And then I also managed RECs, which is renewable energy credits that states create to incentivize the development of renewable energy. And then they decided actually to get out of renewable energy. So I worked on then selling all the projects in the portfolio, which was a great experience. And then after that happened, we all lost our jobs. About 10 years ago, I said, based on my research, I think solar is going to be the biggest growing energy and renewable energy technology because of the cost declines that I see in the future, the efficiency of the panels as well. So then I was focused on working at a solar company. So I turned down other opportunities. And I ended up working at a national solar installer based in New Jersey called Vanguard Energy Partners, which has installed over 125 megawatts worth of projects. And I did project finance related work. It was a smaller company. I did business development. And then I also managed their Eshrec portfolio. And then we did one of the first bond financings for solar with our partner with Citigroup for Somerset County. This is all actually with the Somerset County Improvement Authority, which is, this is all public information. You could actually see it online. And then... So anyone that wants to fact check Benoit, <laughs> yes. he's challenging you to fact check him. <laughs> then after that, I worked at Solar City Tesla. I was actually in their project finance group. At that time, Solar City was a private company, not publicly traded. That was mostly a California-based company looking to move to the East Coast markets. 
And I basically helped them come up with their SREC trading strategy. At the time, the head of the project finance group was Lyndon Rive. He's the CEO of SolarCity, and he's Elon's cousin. And I've had the opportunity to meet Elon as well. Then about seven years ago in August, in August of 2012, I started Renew Energy. And we first started in brokering SRECs. We also source financing for projects. Last year, we helped one of our clients with introducing them to project opportunities for $35 million worth of projects where we originated the relationship with the developer. We know what type of projects they like. We educated them on the opportunity. For example, two of the projects were within the SMART program, which is a feed-in tariff program, which we educated our client who has $600 million to invest in renewable energy projects, specifically solar in the U.S. Yeah, that's kind of like the long story of yeah, my but something, something in your gut, in addition to the research you did, led you to hone in on the solar market and focusing on that. Definitely, and it's amazing for me to see how quickly you know. Now I have ten years of experience in the solar industry. I don't consider myself just a financing person because I've been on all sides of the transaction and on all the development aspects of it, O&M, even the construction side. It's interesting because 10 years of experience in the solar industry, you're really considered a veteran because yeah. it's such a new industry versus other industry where there are people who have 30 to 40 years of experience. Speaking of it, since it is such a relatively new industry, let's break down the financing 101, Benoist. So tell us, to our listeners out there, kind of the, where the uh, starting point is for people out there for looking into financing. Sure. So I think one of the big things that people have to understand is like the federal incentives related to solar energy. So first there was a 1603 Arrera grant, which was like a 30% cash grant to do solar. But then that actually changed to an investment tax credit. So what happens is 30% of the cost of your system, you get a credit with the investment tax credit. But the challenge is that you need like to have the tax liability to be able to take that 30% credit. There's also accelerated maker's depreciation where you could depreciate the cost of the system within five years instead of normally it's like straight line depreciation, which matches the useful life of a solar project, which is usually 20 to 30 years. So basically what I'm saying is that with federal incentives, 50% of the cost of the system is actually paid through by federal incentives. So 30% from the investment tax credit, then over the five-year period, 20% is by the maker's accelerated depreciation. Then different states have different state incentives, which make it important. But with the investment tax credit, it makes it more challenging because not every company will have the tax incentives or the taxable income to take advantage of it. So the first sort of option, there's basically a cash. You have the tax liability, you could take that. And then there's also, too, you could do like bank financing, right? Where you work with your bank to basically lend for that solar project. And then you could take the tax liability. Outside of that, there's like third-party financing. And basically, third-party financing allows people to go solar by... It primarily occurs through two models, basically a power purchase agreement, which is PPAs and a solar lease. So a third party is basically owns the solar system in a power purchase agreement and they do all the operation and maintenance. And basically what they do is they provide discounted electricity. So usually like the discounts between five 
to 20%. Sometimes the discount's more than that if you're in a state where they have extremely high state-level incentives. Also, sometimes people include, because usually if you're commercial industrial, you need a relatively new roof to put solar. So sometimes in that cost, there's some sort of roof restoration or roof replacement involved. And either could be your same cost of electricity, maybe a little bit higher or a discount. That's a way of kind of self-funding it. And power purchase agreements are very popular when projects are over 500 kilowatts or more. Once it's below 500 kilowatts, it's more challenging because there's a lot of legal costs required to agree to these contracts. And then there's basically two types of leases. There's a capital lease and then there's an operating lease. A capital lease is basically an on-balance sheet transaction in which the borrowing entity owns the system. And they basically utilize, the owner utilizes the tax benefits associated with the ownership of these systems. We talked about depreciation, the investment tax credit as well. Basically, the owner of the system is owning the project and then they're taking the tax incentives. And that's the key difference between a capital lease and an operating lease. Basically, an operating lease is where is also known as like a tax equity lease or off balance sheet lease. And basically the borrower accepts a discounted monthly payment and the borrower still receives like any sort of state level incentives like rebates or what we talked about, SRECs. And then the person lending the money is basically taking the tax incentives, the investment tax credit, and then the depreciation. And then what happens is they basically monetize the lender all the tax benefits. And that usually happens after the fifth year. Then the person who's been paying the solar lease or the commercial industrial customer, they could then purchase the project from the lender after year six or seven, usually it's year seven, because at that point, all the tax incentives have been taken out. Usually how that's valued is at fair market value or FMV, where you hire a third party appraisal firm, which I used to work at those, like right. Lloyd Intuition, Ernst & Young, or it's like a percentage of the original construction costs. Usually it's between 15 to 30% of the original cost. A capital lease is an on-balance sheet transaction where the person lending the money takes the tax incentives. Then after the term of the agreement, they then normally buy the asset at a dollar. And those are like basically the three primary forms of financing for solar for commercial industrial projects. And you could as well, utility scale. Residential is very similar as well. I mean, you could do cash, obviously a bank loan through your bank, through maybe your mortgage company. You could do a lease, but the lease is different. It's not an operating lease or capital lease. It's basically a 20-year lease, fixed payment, whereas a purchase agreement you could do as a residential customer. Right. It's based on production and then some sort of discount. Also very popular in residential is like a PACE program, which there are some PACE programs that are commercial industrial. And basically what PACE does, it some states establish basically public solar financing program and PACE basically stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy Programs. The city or township or municipality loans the homeowner the cost of the system, and the homeowner pays the money back through higher property taxes. So that's another way that projects are being financed as well through PACE, and states or townships have PACE programs. That's quite a lot. 
for it's a lot of information. Yeah. So if someone isn't in a position to hire an expert like you, Benoit, what are some good resources they can start with, especially finding some of these state incentives that they offer? What are some places you recommend people to start? Desire.org will have this actually in the notes of the podcast. What they do is a great job of summarizing all the major state-level incentives, and then they also direct you to the actual legislation as well. So they summarize it. So normally what I do, because each state is unique in its own way, is I look at Desire first, and then their summary And then if you really want to understand it, you really have to read through the legislation. So I recommend them. And then SIA, which is the biggest solar lobbying group. SIA, it's the Solar Energy Industry Association, which Renew Energy is a part of. Also, it has great resources that talk about the financing. They talk about the investment tax credit, makers accelerated depreciation. The other thing, too, which we've talked to in previous podcasts, the solar investment tax credit is going to be dropping down. In 2019, it's currently 30%. 2020, it goes to 26%. 2021, to 22%. Then 2022, it's at 10% and stays at 10% for commercial and utility and 0% for residential. Right now, actually, and Lee's heard this, too, the House and Senate have introduced legislation for a five-year extension of the solar investment tax credit that happened at the end of July to keep it at 30% because this has been a great incentive to develop solar. Definitely reach out to your House of Representatives or Senator. This has allowed a lot of development of solar in the U.S. Abigail Ross Hopper, who's the president of SIA, says since 2005 when the ITC... The investment tax credit was first passed by the Republican-led Congress and signed to law by President George W. Bush. The ITC has created 100,000 jobs, sparked more than $150 billion in private investment, and helped grow solar deployment by more than 10,000%. We've mentioned this now about this ITC and this bill like three times. And it's amazing, actually, how many people from the show have reached out to us about this and to try to understand this more. So it's been an amazing sort of experience. The other thing, too, Lee, I wanted to talk about, we did a podcast about energy storage, energy storage trends. We had a lot of listeners reach out to us about that. And they were asking whether the ITC qualifies battery storage. And it does qualify battery storage, but the battery must be charged by the solar array. The battery must be installed within at least one year of the solar array's completion. So that's the only ways it really qualifies for the investment tax credit. Right now, the investment tax credit doesn't qualify standalone storage. But in April of 2019, a congressman, Michael Doyle, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, filed legislation to modify the federal tax code to include energy storage as an eligible technology for the investment tax credit. Currently, the ITC under Section 48 and 25D of the Internal Revenue Sat. Code Revenue Code allows project owners to receive federal tax credits for installing designated renewable energy equipment with battery storage. So that's what I was talking about before. There's actually a great article that Solar Power World wrote about this, how battery storage can be eligible for the ITC today and possibly in the future. We'll have that actually in the notes as well in the podcast. There's a pretty extensive article on this topic from Solar Power World. 
And we'll post a link to our show notes too on that. Yeah. And the other thing too, what SIA and NREL have done, they've created templated documents of the power purchase agreement and lease. So what a lot of companies are doing is using that as their template because one of the things that I was talking about is the legal costs are so high Mm -hmm. for these commercial industrial customers to negotiate the PPA with the developer or investor of the project. So this is a way of kind of taking accepted practices. Obviously, each project is unique, but we'll also have a link as well to the PPA and lease document that NREL and SIA have created to use. And that is actually very helpful. Like I've read it many times. I've read many, obviously, PPA and lease agreements. But I think if someone really wants to get into the weeds and kind of understand the different components, they should definitely check that out as well. So check out the SIA website, which is SIA.org, S-E-I-A.org. There you'll find a lot of information on the solar investment tax credit, which Benoit is referring to, and also a lot of great resources if you're just starting to get into the game. The reason why we're just keeping this very high level is we obviously have a lot of senior people in the solar industry who are listening to it, but then why we say the 101s is because it's amazing how many people are listening to the podcast who don't really have much experience in solar and we hear from everyone. So we definitely want your feedback and how we could improve the podcast. And this is some of the feedback that we've got. And we hope this helps. I know this is actually a lot of information in a very short time if you're not familiar. And I, I could have gone into a lot more depth maybe in solar financing, solar 201, 301, 401, 501. We'll do that. And one thing I want to do is like thank our listeners of the podcast It's amazing to me how amazing the community has been, how much you guys reach out to us on phone, email, calls, and all these different avenues. And it's amazing, too. We're getting record amounts of download of the podcast, and we appreciate our listeners. And it's amazing, too, your feedback of how its impact and the feedback that you have. And today is actually Tuesday. We're here in the studio We just released our come out every Tuesday. We're already having a record download of podcasts today. And then yesterday, which is Monday, which usually we don't have a big download day, became a record download. So we really appreciate that. I also want to shout out Podknife, P-O-D-K-N-I-F-E. They mentioned the Solar Maverick podcast about a great place to get perspective on energy markets and entrepreneurship on Twitter. And I apologize, I haven't been checking my Twitter account that often. And basically what Podknife does is they slice through the podcast universe with advanced search filters that you could only find at podknife.com. Right, so So that way you can help find very niche subject matters that you might be interested in. I checked it out. It's a pretty useful tool for anyone who listens to podcasts. So it really helps you dial down on finding the most relevant information that you love. Definitely. Speaking of, Benoit, I'm looking at an article here in PV Magazine, and it's talking about huge growth in the solar market. The headline here is solar met 2.7% of U.S. electric demand during the first half of 2019. Why is this significant? To me, why it's significant, 2.7% is actually not that much if you really think about it. But there's so much more a record amount of solar is coming on each year almost every year since the past 10 years since i've been in the industry and i think the next 10 years it's going to be even more and the interesting thing is basically solar is rising because it's becoming competitive with natural gas 
wind. You're getting higher solar output now. The costs are going down, as I said, the efficiencies. And it's amazing because certain states like California met more. Th- so this is 2.7% of the U.S., but California itself had 17% of its wow. demand from solar during the first six-month period of 2019, which is amazing if you think about it. That's pretty significant. I mean, 17% in such a large state, I mean, that's quite high number of coverage, right? Yeah, yeah it's a high number of coverage. Like Germany yeah. is almost at 50%. And then, Lee, I know you used to live in Hawaii. Hawaii is not that far behind with solar meeting 14% of demand. And there's the portions much higher on the island of Kauai, where solar met more than one-fourth of all electricity demand last year. So it's amazing to see how quickly solar is growing in the U.S. and how in other states, there's still a long way for it to go. Nevada's as well, very close at around like 13.7%. Arizona at 9.2%. Utah at 7%. But on a national scale, it's still relatively low. But obviously, those states have high electricity costs, a lot of sun. Some of them have strong state-level incentives to make it happen. So it's exciting to see because I think this number is just going to increase substantially 10 years from now. I think it's going to be a lot more than 2.7%. I mean, there's a lot of hope in just seeing these states lead the way. I mean, California almost hitting 20%. That's a huge benchmark for anyone to look at. Oh, that's a huge benchmark. Definitely. That is a pretty large chunk of our show today. We appreciate your support of the podcast. If we're adding value to you, please provide a five-star review. If you have feedback on the podcast, feel free to email us at info at renewenergy.com. And we're excited as well to have like the YouTube channel up We're also working on building out the Solar Maverick podcast website as well out. And there's a lot of exciting things. You know, I just came back a few weeks ago from the podcast movement conference. We're still getting our arms around all the different information. So we think there's still ways we can improve. We have a lot of exciting guests coming up and a lot of exciting topics. So I appreciate, Lee, everything you've done. This has been an amazing journey that we've had. And It's just the beginning. All right. Thank you, listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community. And that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. 